Welcome to Wild Blue Yonder on the Air, Air University's podcast. Today, our guest is Marissa Kester. Her new book, From the Beginning, Women in the U.S. Air Force, is new from Air University Press. We're so thrilled that you could join us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed reading your book. It has the really interesting perspective of being written by an Air Force officer from the inside, writing history to include women as as full participants in the, the Air Force military experience. So please tell me what got you interested to undertake this project. Um, well, really, when I switched over from active duty to the reserve, regular to reserve component back in 2016 and became a historian, I was just trying to get a better baseline understanding of 20th century American history and Air Force history. And so just kind of doing the basic reading readings of what was out there. And it just, I kept noticing and I don't know if I was really looking for it, but I just kept noticing there was no mention ever of any women involved. And I'm like, okay, I know then there had to be at least one, right? Like <laughs> it's kind of odd. And so then that got me looking for specific books about women in the Air Force or, you know, women through the history of the Air Force. And I just really couldn't find any. And honestly, still today, I, I keep thinking I'm going to run across something like on Amazon. I notice it and I have the capacity to do it. I might as well try to, to try to do it. So that's what really got me started um, with the topic. And then once I got going and researching, and it was really fascinating to me kind of how um, it was its own unique topic unto itself. And it did really deserve its own book. And you point out that women really have been working with and alongside and and for the military since the beginning of U.S. history. Could you expound on what those roles were? Yeah, they really have been involved um, from the beginning, maybe not in the typical um, way we might think. During even the Revolutionary War, manpower shortages have always been an issue. Anything that was done on the field, such like cooking, cleaning, sewing, nursing, all those things, they still needed to be done. Um, and actually, during that Revolutionary War, it was common for wives, mothers, daughters, anyone, especially if they didn't have the financial means to support themselves when their spouse or whoever was away, which was generally the case, they were allowed to follow the army around and stay with the army in exchange for those services, uh, like I said. So it was a pretty common thing to do. Uh, women were also hired as employees, particularly in the medical services. You know, nursing has always been a need during war, <laughs> having them around there in any conflict and even things that were not technically conflicts, you know, when you're expanding across the frontier or colonial militias, like you always need nursing. And so get up to the civil war and women really started getting more involved, became spies, saboteurs. They still did the same basics, the cooking, the laundry, the cleaning, all those types of things. But they really got more involved with the actual like blowing things up and helping prisoners escape and kind of the the exciting things we think about when um, we imagine combat or women in conflict. I think these roles often get overlooked because they happen in an era of crisis. So generally, we tend to the generation that lives out a war experience, by the time they've kind of moved out of popular influence, popular culture, we just have moved on and, you know, blessing or curse, we kind of forget about it. (laughs) And so the things that get remembered and written down are often the big picture, you know, campaign analysis, tactical battle maneuvers, those sorts of things. And then, of course, the good old-fashioned combat stories, and women are not part of any of those. And so I think it just kind of perpetuates this idea that women haven't been involved and they don't, you know, to use lack of a better word, belong in, in that arena. So we don't even look for, and therefore we don't find, stories of women doing important things, and whether that's blowing something up or 
doing all the nursing for a unit, you know, they're all important and they're all necessary, but we don't typically focus on them. That's a great lead in to what happens in the late 19th century, that is women become vital to some technologically focused jobs as, as typewriters, as skilled uh, clerical workers, as telephone operators. So what does that mean for the military when they enter World War One? Yeah, they do. And, you know, the, the office used to be definitely an exclusively male domain. So that was kind of a big switch. And so as we start to ramp up, you know, we didn't enter World War One until towards the end. Um, but we knew it was going on and we were ramping up um, in especially both pu- public and private sector, sector, multiple industries. And so that pulled more men into those. And then women that were also doing those jobs. And ironically, that actually created a shortage in women type jobs you know, the clerical work that women typically did. And so actually the Navy was the first service to kind of look ahead at that and say, well, if we have a shortage of clerical, uh, women willing to do clerical work, then we need to get some, we need to get the best because if we're going to be entering the war, you know, we need that, that's important. And so they were the first service to actually open up to women and enlist women uh, for that purpose. So it was kind of this funny event, you know, line of events that led to that. I appreciate your insight and your answer to my previous question about why things tend to get overlooked and and how the end of the war usually brings on people's relief to the extent that they don't want to think about it anymore. And you really highlight how that factors into the trajectory of women in in air power, because after World War One, people really didn't want to think about the the trench warfare or or the fighting, and so they're attracted to not the kind of aces and the the male pilots. They're into the really glamorous women pilots. That's that's amazing. After World War One and after World War Two as well, there was we kind of had this period of economic prosperity and boom, um, and that certainly contributed as well. So after World War One you know, aviation really kind of took on a life of its own as its own industry. It was very much a civilian industry. There was still um, some debate over whether or not it would be beneficial in the military, you know, as a primary tool versus just an auxiliary thing that was available when necessary. And another reason, which was kind of funny that so many aircraft uh, were developed and produced during World War One. And then after the war, like I said, it was kind of up in the air whether we still needed them or not. And so the military actually sold off a ton of their aircraft um, to the public, the highest bidder. And so it became fairly popular to have your own aircraft. And so um, women, particularly women of you know greater financial means, ended up getting their aircraft license because it was just a fun new way to travel around. And so, yeah, they, you know, Amelia Earhart, Jacqueline Cochran, there were a few of them that really became kind of um, celebrities of the day. And those women, Harkness Love and uh, Cochran, are looking at the war clouds on the horizon in the late 30s and thinking about the role that women could play in what they would predict is going to be a, a big deployment of aircraft. What are they up to? Yes, definitely. Yeah, Cochran was um, a big player in this. She was big, you know, during the golden years of aviation. She had her own makeup company that she would fly around. And um, her husband, um, she married a big um, tycoon. And so she had not only the wealth, but also the power and influence. So she was very involved in the DC um, political circle. And so 
even as early as 1939, she was writing to Eleanor Roosevelt saying that there's going to be pilot shortages and women can fly and women can do the job of basically letting a man go fight. So she hit a lot of roadblocks those first few years, a lot of no's, no ways, not right now's. Um, <laughs> so she ended up taking advantage of an opportunity to take some women and actually go over to help Britain. And they had a women's auxiliary pilot unit that they were already flying over there. So she went over there for a little bit and while she was gone, Nancy Love kind of slid in there. Her husband, so Nancy Love was a pilot, a great pilot in her own right. She worked at the Air Transport Command at the office in Baltimore. Her husband was a reserve officer in the Army Air Corps. And one day while he was at work, he, you know, chatting to the guy next door who turned out to be the commander of the fairing division. And he just mentioned that his wife commutes to her job by plane every day from D.C. to Baltimore back. And that really kind of piqued this guy, General, or at the time he was Colonel, but Tunner, and piqued his interest. They got together. He met up with Nancy Love, and they had a few meetings. They brought up a proposal, and they kind of got a hold, or they did, they got the Women's Auxiliary Fairing Squadron, the WAFs, established, you know, while Cochrane was gone. So this all happened fairly quickly. Um, and so the WAFs was established through the Air Transport Command, uh, Cochrane got back from Britain within a week or two of this being established. And she was like, you know, I was promised some things <laughs> a few years ago that if there ever was a women's pilot unit that I would be in charge of it. And so another one was created where she was in charge. So we went from kind of a, I don't foresee women being needed in this field to having two separate units, um, within the span of like a year. And so, uh, both those units got up and running and, they eventually, the next year, were, were combined into the WASPs, which is what everyone kind of remembers and thinks about. But they had a little bit different missions. Um, so they were busy. They were busy. But, you know, if it wasn't for persistence on both ends, um, you know, I don't know if, if it would have happened on its own. What sort of work were they doing? The Women's Flying Training Detachment was as the name suggests, uh, more of a training detachment. Um, that was Cochrane's unit where she trained women pilots once they, you know, got through the selection process. And she trained them in the exact same way that the male Army Air Force pilots were being trained. And then Nancy Love's unit, the WAF, they were just, they jumped right into ferrying. So they were ferrying planes from bases within the United States. So they never left the U.S., but uh, they were moving aircraft all over the country, um, depending on what was needed logistics-wise. A theme throughout your book is that a lot of these decisions are made for manpower purposes, to free up men to do combat jobs. And in the case of the, the women pilots, they're doing that exceptionally well, but that creates a, a fairly ugly backlash. Yeah, it really does. Um, and by 1943, so again, we're not that far into it, still middle of World War II, uh, there was kind of a full-scale slander campaign going on. Um, the most common accusation being that military women were essentially uniform prostitutes. Um, <laughs> so it was actually it was so widespread that the War Department asked the FBI to investigate because it, they thought it might be an effort to undermine the morale of the American military. And so the FBI found out that, nope, it was within the military, primarily because poorly enforced anti-fraternization policies, particularly the officer men. They were not being punished for having relations with any women enlisted or officer. Um, and so that, of course, easily sparks the rumor that, oh, women are just doing whatever they need or want to do to get a job or promote or whatever it was. Um, 
And so, you know, somewhat of a childish <laughs> rumor mill, but it is amazing how that kind of stuck really with women in the military for a long time. And I would argue even today, I'm sure there's still a little bit of that stereotype lingering. So it's, it's pretty amazing what those things can do. After the war, just as you've, you've talked about after World War I, or really any of the, the, the previous wars, the women's services are dissolved, but the U.S. stands on the brink of uh, the Cold War with fewer men available and a, a fairly severe necessity to keep the military strong. So um, could you tell us about the, the Women's Armed Service Integration Act and both sort of how it included women, but what sort of limitations were, were built into it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, there was, there was kind of this, this juxtaposition between, um, you know, military capability being where it was and you know, what it wasn't. And then the public rhetoric that was going on as the cold war was kind of building up quickly. And so, you know, tons of men had been demobilized and sent home after world war II. And another factor was the low birth rate during the 1930s, uh, during the great depression meant that the number of young, healthy men available for service during, you know, the fifties really coming up soon was going to be smaller than had been previously available. And so um, you know, there was still a ton of congressional and public debate over the issue of allowing women to be in a peacetime military, but the act was eventually signed June 1948. Um, and the idea was that women could provide same idea in World War II, um, kind of a backup manpower shortage, gap fill, free a man to fight type thing. Um, and so having them already in the military in a peacetime function meant that they could be mobilized much quicker in the event of a large scale conflict. Um, if that happened, that was kind of really the, the purpose. And that's how most people viewed women in the military for, I would say the first 20 years until really probably the late sixties, early seventies, but within the act, it wasn't, you know, a free pass at all. <laughs> there were still a bunch of limitations because like I said, uh, female service members were still thought of as auxiliary, temporary, just in case, you know, kind of the backup worst case scenario type thing. And so some of the main ones were that women could only constitute no more than 2% of the regular force strength and female officers only 10% of that 2%. So as you can imagine, that created significant um, promotion bottlenecks later on. But within each service, there was only allowed to be one female 06 um, colonel, and they, she was only allowed to hold that position on a temporary basis. And so that was uh, meant to be kind of like the women's director of the women's program in each service. The enlisted age was higher for women. And um, if a woman had any dependents at all under the age of 18, doesn't matter the custody arrangements, doesn't, none, none of it mattered. They were not allowed to join. Um, additionally, they did not receive any type of spousal benefits. If they were, they were allowed to be married and join uh, with a waiver, um, but they did not receive any benefits for their spouse unless their husband relied on them for over 50% of their joint income. Um, so that was a big, you know, those, those two policies right there that really stayed until the 70s. Um, were, were kind of a big deal. And additionally, the service secretaries, each service secretary was authorized. There's a, whole, there's a clause in the act that says specifically, they're authorized to terminate the regular commission or enlistment of any female member at any time for any unspecified reason. Kind of a big um, thing, <laughs> you know, kind of a big wafer to have. And so the idea generally how that was enforced was pregnancy. So without coming out and saying it, if a woman were to become pregnant, she was her, you know, just essentially asked to leave. And and at that time, most women wanted to leave. So it wasn't really as big of a deal as we might think of it now. And then the last big one was, of course, women were not allowed to serve on combat vessels or aircraft, which that, you know, is still being unraveled today, right? That's kind of a recently 
overcome thing. The newly independent Air Force uh, really does need those just-in-time professionals when the Korean War breaks out. And one of the iconic job descriptions uh, in terms of, of women's role in the military is serving in those MASH units, which becomes maybe uh, the thing that Americans think about most with the, the Korean War. So how does that really cement uh, women in, in the Air Force? Yeah, medical air evacuation. It was kind of established, if you will. It became practice over the course of World War One. So by the end of World War One, we were using it uh, regularly. But the Korean War was really the first war where it was kind of used start to finish and certain processes and procedures were really allowed to be put into place. And the Air Force took the lead on that, you know, because it was now a separate service. And medical air evacuation was a huge mission for the Air Force during the Korean War. And nurses aboard those aircraft were, they were kind of the, the heroes of that story. And they were the only ones who were allowed to serve in the Korean theater during that war as well. So kind of another example. And really nurses, of course, need their own entire separate work because, you know, I didn't really discuss nurses as much because it really is its own topic because they have been doing everything this whole time. And it's just, it's funny how it's uh, not really considered. (laughs) In my own work, I ran across a story about Maxwell Air Force Base uh, which, of course, uh, is is one of General LeMay's favorite places. And he really didn't like hearing women air traffic controllers. And the, the best air traffic controller at Maxwell was uh, a woman. And whenever he would fly in, he would insist that she get off the radio and someone, a, a male voice, relay her instructions. Uh, and that, that was really striking to me. Was this fairly typical of, of the 50s and 60s at the time? You know, from everything I've heard about LeMay, he had the reputation of being particularly anti women in the Air Force in general. So that is not a surprise. I've also heard similar stories. And so I think there was an element of policies would change in anticipation of his involvement or his seeing them because everyone kind of knew his attitude. But I would I would argue it probably was along the typical line of thinking at the time. The irony was that we were still, the Air Force were training army, army women to be air traffic controllers, but they would not let Air Force women be air traffic controllers. So I, you know, I think it was a a mix of leadership and just, you know, the culture at the time. Yeah. Your book also includes some of the the really ridiculous obsession with the way that Air Force women look. And it it really reminded me of the same kind of restriction uh, in civil aviation that was put on flight crew and and flight attendants. What what were some of those restrictions on what they could wear and, and how they could act? Oh, yeah, that was a big focus. One of the days I spent researching at the National Archives in D.C., I uh, came across an Air Training Command WAF handbook. And so I spent the afternoon kind of giggling my way through that. (laughs) Just almost all of it was dedicated to how to wear your makeup, what's the, you know, ways you can tweak uniform, hairstyles, and then how to dress when you're not in uniform. I mean, everything you could think of. There were articles, of course, about managing your weight. That's just when salad bars started showing up in the mess halls. The DOD actually worked with cosmetic manufacturers to create and recommend specific shades and products for service women. Newsletters, WAF newsletters gave recommendations on diet and uniform wear. It really was kind of an obsession. And I think a lot of it just had to do that we were in a relatively peacetime military with a lot of money. (laughs) And, you know, kind of, there's always got to be something to pick on and worry about. And that's an easy target. And of course, there's, you know, a little hypocritical in some aspects, such as diet and weight and appearance. But yes, it definitely was um, 
was the practice to focus on that and to reward the women who were viewed as the most attractive. Um, those were the ones that were picked to work in the high level offices or, you know, have the better jobs or those sorts of things. As a historian, you do a, a great job in showing the, the interaction of bigger society developments and then the way that the, the military reflects them. And so when we get to the 1960s, there are huge upheavals in terms of the civil rights movement, the second wave of feminism for women. As the military responds to that and the demands put on them from Vietnam, we get public law uh, 9130. What does that mean for Air Force women? Yeah, th- well, thank you. I um, That's just the way, to me, it made the most sense is to look at the big picture and then kind of distill it down from there because they do all, of course, affect each other. And so PL uh, 9130 effectively effectively removed a lot of the rank restrictions on particularly female officer careers. Uh, but really, it was the first major policy change concerning women in the military since the Integration Act. So that was almost 20 years later, right? That's kind of a long time. Um, the new law opened up promotions to colonel and general ranks and uh, removed, like I said, removed some of the 10% uh, and 2% ceilings, which up until that point had actually never really been an issue. The 10% officer ceiling um, was an issue because of what they call the hump from World War II. So women that joined World War II, by the time we get to this time period, they are, you know, kind of capped at that ceiling. But the 2% strength ceiling, that was never really in danger of being broken at that time. So like I said, female officer careers definitely had the biggest effect right away. Of course, there was backlash to changing those laws. The biggest thing was that people viewed it as kind of a women's promotion law. So now that women could promote to these ranks, there would be a push to promote them to these ranks. There's always that fear that someone's going to take someone else's spot. And, you know, at the time, there were definitely many male and female, male and female officers who really believed that 05, you know, Lieutenant Colonel was as much rank as a woman could handle, given that women were non-combatants. So it wasn't so much an outright like victory for women as again, like we're looking back at it now saying like, oh, great, that's great for them. At the time, it really was kind of a controversial um, decision to make. But of course, looking back, it was it was really kind of the first in what started to be a, a series of changes concerning women in the military. Another Maxwell connection, of course, is that uh, the Supreme Court case changing the way uh, the military treated women with dependents comes out of out of Alabama. I particularly enjoyed our uh, academic services director went and did a, an oral history interview with Miss uh, Frontero. Can you talk about uh, that case? Yeah, I'd love that. I'd love to go back and listen to that. Yeah, that was that was a big deal at the time. She was, I believe, a physical therapist, and basically, you know, with that law, that husbands dependents were not eligible for the women to receive spousal benefits for them, and so as you know, PL 9130 opening up, limiting rank restrictions and kind of opening up those pathways suddenly made certain things like command positions or schools or different experiences more important because now you needed those in order to promote. Now that women could promote, they needed those other experiences. And so along those same lines, as the women were starting to be viewed more as serving in their own right, it just became apparent that, okay, if I'm serving in my own right, then my spouse doesn't matter if they're male, female, right? They're still a spouse. They're still dependent. They're still along for this ride with me. They also need to have equal benefit. And so that was kind of one of the first big um, changes for family policy. And then, you know, a few others followed after soon after. You talk about the the schools and other things that would be needed to promote. And of course, uh, in the Air Force, one of the, the gold rings of that is integrating the Air Force Academy. 
So what kind of taboos get broken? What sort of changes have to happen uh, for that to, to roll out in the 1970s? Yes, absolutely. That was kind of um, one of the big last thresholds, <laughs> right? All the academies at the same time opened up their doors because they ultimately had to. And so, you know, prior to this, of course, as with anything, there was a lot of congressional public debate about the topic. All three military departments, the DOD, President Nixon, they all publicly opposed admitting women to the service academies, citing the argument that um, service academies prepare men for combat and women are not allowed in combat. Therefore, they do not need to go to these service academies. With any scrutiny whatsoever, you would realize that that is not necessarily true. (laughs) That's kind of what they like to tell themselves. But uh, most of those men who graduated from the academies never went to combat. They were not eligible for aviation. And so they never did combat aviation, which, you know, again, the whole storyline of why we don't like women in the academy. But the Air Force actually, from the sources I read, they, they were officially opposed, but unofficially kind of, I wouldn't say approved maybe, but they were, they were ready for it. They kind of knew it was coming and they had eventually women would be admitted when the law passed, um, when public law passed, the air force was kind of the ones that took the lead and really ran with it. They went to schools and recruited women. They set up a cadre of lieutenants who went through the summer cramps so that they could then be the upperclassmen for these first group of women that went through the attrition rate of women from the air force Academy was the lowest of all the services. So, uh, they really, they force kind of took it and ran with it, which I think ended up being beneficial for everyone. 1976 is the next big milestone, which uh, amazing for the Air Force is when women return to the cockpit as pilots. Why had this fallen off the radar after, you know, big celebrities like Cochran and, and Love and women in these other jobs? Why was being a pilot off limits? You know, I think a lot of it is similar to the Academy, the the story we like to tell ourselves. The Air Force is really formed with the idea of it being an elite aviation institution. And so it wasn't going to be as big. It was really focused in on specific uh, mission sets. And so they generally had no problem recruiting the high quality, you know, high caliber elite, you know, air quotes men that they needed and wanted to fly aircraft. And so there really was no need, you know, no, no manpower shortage, no need to have women flying. And then at a certain point that becomes more of a um, storyline rather than a practical uh, view of the topic. And so both the Navy and the Army actually opened up pilot slots to women before the Air Force. Again, this is probably more symbolic than practical at this point. The, a second part of it was that the Integration Act, um, that last clause I talked about that banned women from flying aircraft in combat. So a big part of the Integration Act was that it was left fairly generic so the services could apply the rules as they saw fit to their you know, specific mission sets. Um, and so the Air Force took that clause very seriously. They chose to interpret it with the biggest span or, you know, the most risk averse necessary and determining that pretty much all aviation was related to combat as that was the Air Force mission. Therefore, all aviation is off limits to women. So again, it was a few generalized assumptions and there was no need to challenge that assumption until the other services started doing it. And then it was like, okay, I guess we have to re-examine this kind of last uh, bastion, which you know, the Air Force really has been kind of the first in line to change a lot of policies when it comes to women. So this, this is kind of one of the exceptions to the rule was the the aviation field. When I was on a a tour at the Ronald Reagan historic site in Cooperstown, North Dakota, showing an 80s vintage missile capsule, uh, one of the oral histories there was talking about the kind of local scandal 
uh, when the missile capsule probes uh, were integrated and that the, the two Air Force couples uh, actually publicly went out to dinner to kind of demonstrate to the whole community that they were okay sealing their spouses underground together for, you know, 24-hour shifts. And that just struck me as, as being not just very, very 80s, but pretty typical of the worries <laughs> that, that people had about, you know, what are women going to do and what are the risks of, of putting them in these situations? Did you run into other things like this? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that was definitely, um, I feel like most of the literature I ran into about the integration of missile crews was about the kind of public acceptance of this and the spouses being upset and, you know, whatever any unit did to mitigate this. So that that's pretty funny. But, and, you know, and I mean, I could see from the perspective of being a woman in the Air Force doing the job, you're like, please, like, come on. <laughs> but then from the outside, from being a civilian woman, especially if you have no military experience, this is not a typical scenario. Most women do not have their husbands going and work overnight, you know, with a woman in a closed off unit. So it makes sense really from both sides and kind of the the public broaching of the topic. And again, I think, like I mentioned earlier, the stereotype from World War II of service women, you know, I think most people would not still feel that way, but there is kind of that lingering idea of like, it's, it's unfamiliar for most women and men, of course, not many people join the military statistically, but um, it's just an unfamiliar world. And so if you can't really understand it, and if you don't really align with it, it just makes it, um, you distrust it a little more. And I think that was definitely highlighted when it comes to spouse relationships and that the way they come across in your community. <laughs> in the late 1980s, warfare really changes pretty dramatically. Operation Just Cause in Panama and, and the first Gulf War really underscore that in modern warfare, there's there's no safe behind the lines uh, in the way that the military had categorized who was a combatant and a, a non-combatant. What effect did that have about uh, thinking in terms of, of women and their deployment? Yeah, absolutely. And that has, of course, become even more the case over the last you know 30 years. So a big difference with the Gulf War was the introduction of live news broadcast, live news broadcast, um, where they actually showed, you know, women all geared up in the same, you know, scenario as men facing equal danger as men. And so this is something that the general public doesn't think about on a regular basis, doesn't worry about on a regular basis. But then when you see it on the news, it's kind of like a requires a big perception shift. And really, it exposed the big contradictions in policies concerning women. You know, you have the visual right in front of you of, of wait a second, women are not allowed to be in combat, but they kind of are. <laughs> and so they can do certain things like fly, you know, unarmed targets like tanker refueling tankers or AWACS um, over enemy, enemy territory. They can launch ICBMs with nuclear warheads attached, but they can't deliver conventional weapons from an aircraft. And they can't, therefore, get the applause and the promotions and all the benefits of doing those dangerous jobs. So they're still in danger, but without kind of the full freedom and therefore recognition. So like I said, it just really kind of exposed that contradiction and that paradox there, which then required action because then people were aware of it and the you know women's groups and Dakowitz and then it just had to kind of evolve from that point. The Gulf War also sees the U.S. kind of in the middle of a spectrum in which some of our NATO allies 
are much further along in terms of integrating uh, women into their services. But we also have allies who are very much against integrating women into uh, deployment in their countries, like the Saudi restrictions on women's dress and, and some other demands that were made. What kind of what kind of frictions in the overall operation did that create? Yeah, there was. There was definitely that, you know, you were, women were deployed to a military base doing their their mission. But then when they went out in the local community, had to adhere to certain social customs. And some women really had a problem with that. Martha McSally, I believe she was a major at the time. She was one of the primary ones, the main stories you hear, who really kind of raised the issue and took that to court and basically was ruled that women didn't have to adhere to those customs because they were military women on a U.S. base. You know, so that was, I think it just comes back to what was necessary in the moment. So there's always the ideas of what women can or can't, should or shouldn't be doing in the military or, you know, other nations. We look at other nations, see what they're doing. And I think it just ultimately always comes back to um, the mission at hand and what is kind of required because the topic of women in the military, it's just a theme I kept just noticing over and over again was it was, of course, there's people that are opposed to integration. And of course, there's people that are all for it. But most people are somewhere in the middle, which means that most of the time, nothing happens until it needs to happen. So there needs to be some sort of push in one direction or another. And so I think that's just a great example, a moment in time of like an example on one side, an example on another. And we're kind of in the middle, still trying to work out what we want to do, essentially, with our military force. That's a great pivot to the kind of missions undertaken in the 1990s, where keeping humanitarian and, and relief missions, uh, it turns out that women really interject some advantages into those kind of operations, right? I do. Humanitarian missions are definitely one subset that um, just require a somewhat softer touch. And of course, men are capable of doing all the things women are uh, when it comes to that. But the value of having women alongside and in the units at this point was, was really the advantages were obvious. You know, there's been multiple studies illustrating that people in general tend to trust women more than men for whatever reasons are outlined in the study. But I think at this point, it became obvious that not only could, is that beneficial, uh, but it could be leveraged at some point too. So, you know, having women in the units and going out into the community and actually being in, you know, danger again, like what might be considered a, a combat or, you know, line of fire situation was oftentimes the best way to handle a situation. And then, of course, later, um, we saw this in Afghanistan, where the army put together teams of women that would go out in the community. And, you know, those were hugely important um, part of the strategy overall. Once again, civil society includes more women in business and, and technology roles and civil aviation. And so the, the Air Force and the military overall find themselves in a, in a position where they have to be much more competitive with the civilian workforce. So what kind of changes do they attempt and succeed in regarding family and, and dual career realities? Like I said earlier, once we kind of started really allowing and viewing women as serving in their own right in the military, equal to men, you know, fully all equal individual um, service members, it just became more and more apparent certain policies that needed to change. And once you change one, it becomes apparent, you know, what kind of something else needs to be changed too. And so the 1970s were full of changes around pregnancy. Women were allowed to have waivers when they became pregnant rather than being forced to separate, dependent policies like we talked about. Um, and then it kind of got quiet for a while. And then, like you mentioned, 
really around the early 2000s, there was a lot of shuffling to kind of keep in step with the civilian uh, public institutions, uh, private institutions. And so since then, I mean, tons of policy reform around families. And of course, that always specifically affects women because women are the ones that um, are pregnant and have children. And so, you know, joint spouse, single parent policies, pregnancy, maternity, paternity leave policies, breastfeeding, I mean, all those things. And a big part of that is really just that the Air Force or all the services becoming all volunteer services. You just have to be more in touch with your pool of applicants and your pool of people you might want to recruit into your service because it, it is kind of more of a the civilian line of thinking where you need to recruit and retain. And so you need to offer something that someone is interested in. And so for that, you have to pivot and you have to work with what people want out of their lives and lifestyle versus kind of force something on them. In your book, you talk uh, at some length about the great work that the Barriers Analysis Working Group and the Women's Initiative team do to figure out what people want and and what sort of obstacles uh, stand in the way of of them being uh, the best contributors they can be to a, a great Air Force. What are some of the things that have come out of their work? Oh, yeah, they have been hugely, hugely helpful and successful, I would say in identifying kind of barriers to service, barriers to recruitment or retention, anything that might affect uh, women or minorities. There's a few different subsets of these groups with different focuses, but the ones that specifically look at women, changes in maternity uniforms, creating body armor that actually fits women versus just small male body armor, (laughs) those sorts of things. The new hair policy that was just released earlier this year, I'm missing so many more. And really, there have been quite a few that have happened kind of behind the scenes that don't get a lot of attention because they don't affect, you know, a woman's life right now. But they absolutely are setting the stage for difference to be made in the future. And so, yeah, those those teams have been very successful. And really, I can say, um, having been a part of them and having sat back and kind of observed them, they are just, they are full of motivated people, men and women, who uh really know what they're doing. And so it's fun to watch. The U.S. is moving out of a focus on counterterrorism and counterinsurgency into one in which the planning and the focus is on strategic competition. And so what does that mean in terms of having women in the Air Force? Uh, What does their presence mean for those kind of anticipated large-scale operations? I think you know, when it comes to looking at the the pivot we're kind of going through in the moment for the last few years, the more we can embrace diversity in all its forms and not just the politicized versions of race, gender, you know, those obvious ones, but really like diversity of um, thought, of skill set, of background, of perception. I mean, those kind of finer things that are harder to pick out of a lineup, but just being more open to different ideas and ideals, the better off and more prepared we'll be in the long run. So a way I relate this in the book is, for example, allowing women when they become mothers, not viewing that as a, okay, now how are we going to fit this new role you have into the role of the military and kind of switching that around and looking at, okay, you know, when a, when a woman becomes a mom, she has access now to all these like additional superpowers, right. That are really beneficial to war fighting and to strategy and to, you know, leading a unit or just whatever you want to apply it to. And so it's kind of a mindset shift into looking at the benefits versus having, you know, square into a round hole type thing where you're just trying to make 
what is fit into something that isn't really relevant anymore. And so I think the military as a whole is shifting, you know, we're still, we're, we're only 50 years away from, from the military becoming an all volunteer force. It's really not a lot of time. We're still figuring it out. And with the uh, rate of change, when it comes to technology, social change, like there's multiple undercurrents going on all at once. And so being open and adapt adaptable. And of course, people don't like that. It feels such a big deal in the moment, but then in five, 10 years, you won't even really remember, right? You'll be like, of course that happens, you know? So it's kind of stepping back and having a bigger picture view of this whole thing and looking at what ways can we shift that better serve the mission at hand? Like, what do we need to do? And then who do we need to help us do that versus coming at it from an institutionalized perspective where it's like, well, this is what we have and we need to make it work if that makes sense. One of the most fun recruiting tools I've seen in a long time was the Air Force taking their pilot training next virtual rigs to Captain Marvel screenings and getting young women uh, and little girls interested in being pilots. How is the Air Force tailoring its recruiting and its its opportunities in STEM to attract women and, and building that force of the future that they need? And I include the Space Force here too. Yeah, those are really cool ways they have done that in the past few years. You know, I think at the end of the day, humans are hardwired for stories. We are storytellers and we live our lives based on the stories that um, we are told about our community, about who we are in our community, collective story. You have the national American story. And so I think the more we can leverage that like innate need for a coherent story, like deep in our psyche, the the more you're really going to just naturally ignite that in women. And so, you know, one of my favorite kind of topics to come from this book was remembering really that, you know, across ancient cultures, all ancient cultures, we have these warrior goddesses, right? Who were the goddess of not only war, but also love and fertility. And so these, these ideas that we think now are, are opposite ends of the spectrum haven't always been the case. We haven't always perceived it that way. And so I think the more you can kind of return to that and have uh, women who are fully women and fully warriors at the same time. And you can do that through stories, through books, through fiction, through movies, through TV series, whatever it is, whatever, it, you know, all of them really, the more the better. Um, the more you're going to naturally just make that kind of an accepted storyline and in, in the collective, you know, narrative that we have versus something that is unique and special and maybe not to be trusted. It's like, oh no, this is this is totally acceptable. This is part of, right, the collective story. So I think leveraging that is is a great place to start. I can't think of a, a better way to wrap things up. Is there anything you'd like to, to add as we finish up this uh, interview? <sighs> no, I don't think so. That was, that was fun. I could talk about all this stuff, obviously, for a long time. <laughs> so I hope I didn't inundate <laughs> with too much uh, little information. But no, that was great. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, and this is what we have to say is if you want more, go download her book. This is <laughs> this is Wild Blue Leander on the air. I'm Dr. Margaret Sankey. Our guest has been Marissa Kester, uh, whose book, From the Beginning, Women in the U.S. Air Force, is available from AU Press. Uh, thank you for joining us.